you turn the page this morning to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26, we'll be reading the first 13 verses. This is at page 831 in your pew Bibles, if that's uh, helpful for you. Uh, the first words we'll read this morning are these, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. And when we read that, it uh, should sound familiar to us. This will be the fifth time we've heard it in our studies in Matthew's gospel, or an expression like it anyway. Each of these five sections were teaching sections in uh, Matthew's gospel, then followed by sections of historical narrative. The uniqueness of the expression this time has to do with the inclusion of the word all. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, which uh, tips us off to the fact that Jesus' teaching is now complete. What remains in Matthew's gospel now for us is the history immediately uh, surrounding and certainly including his uh, death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. To Matthew 26 we go right after we pray. Father, we once again thank you for the high privilege it is to receive your word, to hear your voice, and that's exactly what we ask for now. Let us listen for you to speak to us. Open our hearts, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The word of is an amazing word, if you think about it. I mean, it's so very versatile. It can be used as a function word to indicate a point of reckoning north of the lake, 
to indicate the origin of derivation, a man of noble birth, to indicate the cause, motive, or reason, died of, flu. It can mean by, as in plays of Shakespeare. It can mean on the part of, as in very kind of you. It can mean occurring in, as in a fish of the Atlantic. It can be used to indicate the component material, parts or elements or contents, a, a throne of gold, a cup of water. The whole that includes the part, most of the army, the quantity from which a part is removed, give of his time. It can be used in a sense of relating to stories of today. It can be used in a sense of respect to, slow of speech. It can be used as a function word to indicate a possessive relationship, king of England, a mathematical relationship, the function of X, something from which a person is delivered, eased of her pain, something of which a person is divested, robbed of his belongings. It can indicate apposition, that fool of a husband. It can indicate the object of an action, love of nature. I could go on and on and on. Well, as I titled this morning's uh, sermon, this message for our bulletin several days ago, I deliberately used the word of because I needed to supply a title, but I wasn't ready to commit. <laughs> I was struggling at the time with whether we should consider the love of Christ as in the love that flows from Christ to us, or the love of Christ, the love that flows from us to Christ. So the love of Christ, uh, non-committal title. I figured that certainly with a, day, a few days of time to consider it, it would become clear which it should be, and I believe it has. This morning we will consider the love of Christ and the love of Christ. And I want to begin by bracketing the sermon with the love of Christ, or rather the love, rather, of Christ, bracketing the love of Christ. Have I confused you? Well, first, consider with me the love of Christ. That is the love that flows from Christ to us. After all, it's found lying face up in the very opening of our passage today. Jesus says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now there's some real irony, maybe you've caught it, in those words, you know. And because we know from our time together in Matthew that this is the fourth time that Jesus has clearly predicted, prophesied his arrest and crucifixion to dull disciples who never quite get it. They will not grasp what the Lord is telling them until after these events take place. After they unfold. But by beginning this entire last section of his gospel with these words coming from our Lord's lips, Matthew is placing his first stroke on the masterpiece of Jesus' passion that we will be studying together for some weeks, the Lord willing, his great work which will be laced and filled and motivated and moved by the love of Christ. 
and by the love of Christ. And by a love that is acting deliberately to suffer and to die for our salvation. Jesus, as we know, set his face like flint for Jerusalem. He, he's the one who kicked off these events. He's the one who started all of this on purpose by entering the city when he did and the way he did. Jesus is no hapless victim. No, he is self-consciously, he is purposefully, he is, he is sacrificially laying down his life at this time. The good shepherd for his sheep. That's how he's going to the cross, to lay down his life for us, for you, for me. I don't know how we can begin to understand, can we, the magnitude of the love that constrained our Savior, Jesus, to go to this cross work. Knowing full well the terror that awaited him there. A couple of weeks ago, I, I donated blood. And it's always a wrestling match with myself to get myself to do it, dreading it as I do. When I sat down with the nurse for the preparatory examination, my blood pressure was 164 over 101. <laughs> because I was anticipating what was coming, which was a little more than a stick in the arm. What must have been going through Jesus' mind and his heart? What trembling, even to say this about himself, what must his blood pressure have spiked at when he considered what was coming in just two days. I'm going to be crucified. And what made it so unspeakably worse, of course, is that the news was met at best with a little more than an ignorant shrug from the very ones who should have sympathized with him the most, and at worst, a rebuke. Surely not! This is the love of Christ. And it is to his love that I intend to return before we're finished today. But now, second, consider the love of Christ with me. The love that takes center stage here under the Holy Spirit's Spotlight, the love of an unnamed woman who shows up at table to anoint Jesus with a strikingly expensive ointment. But before we can get to that, I, we must first consider the setting. So skillfully prepared as it is for us by the Spirit-inspired author, surely we're meant to pay attention. The love of Christ so extravagantly lavished on Jesus by this unnamed woman is best appreciated against the foil of the hatred of these named men. Caiaphas, the high priest, the chief priest, the elders, for Jesus. Just listen to these men scheming and plotting together at the palace of the high priest. How can we arrest and kill him? One of them asks. Another answers, well, I don't know. Anybody else got an idea? Another says, I don't see how we, we can do it. You know, just think about the backlash. 
With all of the people packed into Jerusalem, including no doubt plenty of Galileans, the risk for riot was too great. Caiaphas, in particular, the high priest, must have been a very shrewd man and cunning. Considering what we know from other sources, that there were some 20, there were 28 high priests in the time span from 37 BC to AD 67. But that Caiaphas had managed to hold on to the position for 18 years, from A.D. 18 to 36, it seems like he must certainly have had a knack for getting along with the Romans. He knew just how to get what he wanted to get from them. He also must be a man jealous for his position, don't you think? He doesn't want any public rioting for which he might take the blame or for which he might be blamed rather so here are these men the most powerful men in the jewish community and notice this very carefully churchmen are diabolically determining together in this place of great prestige how they might slay jesus but not until just after the passover now, whose plan do you think is going to prevail here? Their plan to wait until after the Passover? Or Jesus' plan to die during the Passover? Well, anyway, against the backdrop of these powerful leaders gathered in the palace plotting hatefully against Jesus, Matthew masterfully turns our eyes to the humble home of a leper. Simon by name. Simon the leper. Now, Simon, we surely understand, is not currently a leper. He likely retains the name from a previous affliction of leprosy, likely healed by Jesus at an earlier time, or quite possibly just recently. Maybe Matthew calls him Simon the leper in order to distinguish him from all the other Simons. We've come to four other Simons here in Matthew's gospel alone. Matthew's teasing us a little bit in that we could... We would like to know so much more about him, wouldn't we? You call him Simon the leper, and then you don't tell us anything more. Well, we want to know how did he get cured, and what is his connection with Jesus? And is he connected with the woman who we learn from John's Gospel is Mary, the sister of Martha, and Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead? Is she Simon's wife? Is she Simon's daughter? All very intriguing. Maybe what Matthew is doing is, is pointing out to us with an artistic stroke again uh, the closing of Jesus' miraculous ministry in his gospel just the way it began with the healing of a leper immediately following the sermon delivered on the mount. In this case, the Mount of Olives. In that case, the Sermon on the Mount. You remember back in chapter 8, you remember Jesus stretched out his hand and touched the leper saying, be clean. Is Matthew deliberately starting and ending Jesus' ministry to the unclean whom he ultimately intends to cleanse by his death on the cross by being delivered up to crucifixion? You can add that to the list of questions that we have for Matthew, when we see him, as we most certainly will. At any rate, it's from this hate-filled, prestigious palace 
to the love-filled, humble home of a leper that our eyes turn now to learn by contrast what the love of Christ looks like from a woman, unnamed, but uh, known to us from John's parallel account as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. The account's brief but beautiful and worth our reading again. Verse 6, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now what's going on here? Well, it's not unknown for anointings to take place as an act of hospitality to the guest. But this, this, this is extravagant. Matthew says that it was expensive. And the indignant disciples point out that it could have been sold for a large amount of money. But Mark and John, in their parallel accounts, uh, identify the substance as nard. A very expensive luxury imported from India. John gives us a certificate of analysis. Pure nard. And he gives us an evaluation. 300 denarii. Pretty much a typical full year's wage in that time. Imagine that. You've just filed your taxes within the last few months, or if you're like some of us, within the last few weeks. And uh, you can imagine now that figure on line 11, adjusted gross income on your 1040. That's how much this ointment was worth. Line 11 on your 1040 your entire year's wages from last year. This was one impressive anointing. Who does this? You know, who, who, who makes this kind of sacrifice? Who takes what was probably a precious family heirloom, opens it up, and pours it out, all of it, on one person at one time? That's what they were thinking, isn't it? That's what the disciples were thinking. They were looking on with... Horror, you know, what a waste this is. All they can see is glug, glug, glug money being poured out, right, on his head. And of course, they frame it in pious terms, you know, pretentiously, they say. Oh, this could have been sold and the money given to the poor, right? Now, this is all about money. That's all this is about, especially for Judas. So again, I ask, what's going on? I'll tell you what's going on, and you know what's going on. In a single word, you know. Love. This is the love of Christ. This woman had such a love for the Lord Jesus Christ, welling up in from her heart that she just simply had to find a way to express it, a fitting way to express it. Words alone simply would not do she had to do more. She had to show him how much she loves him, how much 
she is grateful to him. And only the most expensive thing she can lay her hands on will suffice to make the point. She had to get it. She had to break it open, pour it out on the Lord's person, or her heart would break. She had experienced the love of Christ, you see. And now she was filled with the love of Christ that demanded her devotion, her extreme, immoderate, extravagant devotion. But wait just a minute. You have experienced that love of Christ, haven't you? Jesus has loved you. He has cared for you. He's provided for you. He has healed you. He has healed your loved ones. He has answered your prayers. He has carried your sorrows. Jesus has laid down his very life for you. And you know that. So as we look at Mary pouring out this shockingly costly devotion on Jesus, we have a task to do, don't we? We are now by imagination to transfer what we are seeing here. Mary in that house now filled with the fragrance Wiping the perfume with her hair, as John tells us she did. Now we're to transfer all of that into our lives. And ask, what does the love of Christ require of me? To ask ourselves, every one of us, that question. What would be the equivalent for me? of Mary's immoderate, unqualified, even shockingly extravagant sacrifice? What is my unqualified, shockingly extravagant sacrifice for him? What is it? What is yours? What would Jesus point to in your life today and say, now that, that is unmistakable devotion, the demonstration of lavish love for me, of her devotion to me, of his devotion to me. Just look at that. What would Jesus point to in your life and say that about? We do well to ask ourselves, don't we? Because while we certainly may give a little here or there, you know, out of our abundance, it's not nearly as common for us to give so sacrificially that as to cause others, if they know about it, to be shocked. To think he's... What is he, nuts? Is she crazy? What is going on here? This, she's crossed some kind of boundary here of good sense in her enthusiasm for Jesus. I can't tell you, of course, what form such an outlandish devotion would take place in your case and in your case and yours and yours and yours and yours. I can't dictate that or list it from the pulpit here. Obviously, we 
We can't all take a jar of nard and pour it physically over Jesus' head. That was the form Mary's love for Christ, of Christ took that day. Nor is that the form uh, that her love took every day. Is it? But every day she loved him. What is it, dear ones? What is it in your life, in your circumstances? What does extravagant love for Jesus look like? What comes nearest to her splendid example in your life? Did Mary look over at her brother Lazarus, I wonder, reclining at table with Jesus just before she anointed Jesus? Did, did her heart well up at the recollection of those words? Did they ring in her ears again, Lazarus, come forth? When Jesus raised her brother from the dead, does your mind, your mind sometimes go to the banqueting table? To the table at which you and I will be found one day sooner than any of us imagines? And does your heart well up and maybe even your eyes at the prospect of finding yourself raised from the dead and in the presence of Jesus too? Then what is an adequate response on your part. What form must the love of Christ take for you who are the happier recipients of the love of Christ? Lavished as it is, and I mean lavished, every moment of every day, waking and sleeping of our lives. I can't answer, I say. I can't answer that for you, but I have seen it. And so have you. I've known church members who have given so much of their money and of their time in loving others in the church that unbelievers and even believers around them scratched their heads and thought to themselves, this is just over the top. This, this, this looks like it's irresponsible to me. I conversed just a few days ago on the sidewalk with a friend I haven't seen in years because the last time we talked, he was with his family packing their bags to move to a completely different part of the world and hostile to take up ministry there. That seemed over the top to most of the people around him, around them, around him and his wife and their family. I've seen people remain faithfully in loveless marriages out of devotion to Jesus. People undergoing crushing affliction out of love for Jesus, cheerfully giving glory to him. I've seen God's people, I've seen people maintaining their Christian testimony even the point of losing their jobs. I've seen that in this congregation out of devotion to Jesus. I've seen people sacrifice entire days, hours, multiple days and hours of their lives, even to the point of exhaustion to help a brother or sister get what they needed. I've seen Christians spend the years, all of the years of their lives in service and in love and selfless 
self-devotion and grinding day after day all their lives out of love of Christ. And you've seen that kind of devotion too. Maybe you're imagining that example in your own mind right now. What form, I ask you once again, does that devotion take in your life? It's interesting that Matthew puts this history at this point in the gospel, isn't it? It actually, chronologically, it doesn't belong here. It belongs earlier, but Matthew, we know, has the freedom to move around material as he likes. He takes this event from earlier and he places it here in his text. And I think he does so to make a point. He saves this story for this very place, I rather suspect, to underscore the point that Jesus has just been making over and over and over again. Remember in his parable of the talents? In his teaching about the goats and the sheep? That it is in loving and serving other people, the Lord's people in particular, he points out, that we serve Him. That we love Him. Listen to this account of the calling of Francis of Assisi. He had dreamed as a boy and then as a young man of doing great exploits in battle. He had always wanted to be a warrior covered with glory. And then one day he was riding outside his town, perhaps riding, uh, while riding he was indulging those dreams of glory uh, on the field of battle. But he saw coming toward him on the road, not the banners and spears of the army, of uh, Perugia, Assisi's ancient enemy, but instead a single figure whom when he got closer he realized was a leper. And he knew in an instant, Francis did, that his courage was being challenged, not as the world challenges courage, but as God does who knows the secrets of men's hearts. We can imagine what transpired in those few moments in the heart of that man, so soon to be one of the greatest men of Christian history and of the Christian church. And then he sprang off his horse and he rushed to the leper and he threw his arms around him and then he gave to him everything he had to give. He then remounted and rode off. We don't know how far he rode, but it said that when he looked back, there was no man standing in the road. Of course, we understand the point. When we love others in Christ's name, particularly when we love brothers and sisters of ours in Christ's name, we're loving Christ. We're exercising the love of Christ. He is with us. Now, just as surely as he was with Mary and Lazarus and Simon the leper in that house and Martha, he is with us in this room. He is sitting right next to you and across the aisle from you and in front of you and in back of you. He is with you in others whom you love in his name. In Francis' case, it didn't matter really whether he was a leper or, or Christ himself. Either way, he was pouring out expensive perfume on Jesus' head that day on the road. 
I tell you, dear ones, you will never regret. You will not live to regret for the rest of eternity any sacrifice, any love that you pour out extravagantly on Christ that caused others to wonder what is the matter with you. And you will be happier, I tell you, for having done that that than you will be for any comfort or any luxury you afforded yourself in this life. Just think about this for a minute. What greater compliment could ever be paid? What more wonderful thing could ever be said about a human being than what Jesus said about Mary? Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the world and Jesus' prophecy is coming true as we speak. Right here, right now, in this place. Which brings me to the third, as I promised, to third point, to come back around to the love of Christ, having considered the love of Christ. Right back where we started. Don't you see it here at the end? Jesus loved Mary. He did. He loved this whole family. We read that in John 11. But here's how he showed it in this case. First, he defended her. Did you see him do that? To his huffy, indignant disciples, he says, why do you trouble the woman? He stands up for her. He comes to her rescue. And you may be absolutely certain of this. You may take this to the bank. He will defend you as well. And he will vindicate you. Second, he praised her. She's done a beautiful thing for me, he says. Reminds me of what we heard just recently from the parable of the talents, remember? Well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. And that praise of Mary, he has caused to resound down the corridors of history and throughout the whole world, hasn't he? Her sweet perfume that filled that leper's house, it now fills the four corners and the seven continents of the world. Can, can't you smell it? Can't you smell that nard? If you will listen carefully, too, if you'll use another sense, you can hear stealing on your ear a voice from heaven saying to you, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds do follow them. And third, he died for her. Verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. The one who raised her brother Lazarus from the dead, she was now, whether wittingly or unwittingly, we could make quite a study out of that, couldn't we? But she is preparing for his own 
death for her. Such is the love of Christ, his undying, no, his dying love for Mary, for Lazarus, for you, for me, for all of us who belong to him. The extravagant love of Christ shall have its extravagant echo of the love of Christ from us because we love him but only because he loved us first.